Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtations Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 1. Aboard the Electra. Why? That's why, Vicky explained to her family, the Electra is so challenging. Mary Carter warned us, stewardess, while she was retaining us for the Electra, that this beauty flies so fast there's hardly time to get all your jobs done. You mean it's a hard assignment, don't you? said Ginny. She was 14 and Vicky's younger sister. Their mother, Betty Barr, said, I'm sure if I had your job on a jet prop, or is it a jet? Which is it, Lewis? Professor Barr looked amused. You know perfectly well, the all jet without propellers, he said. The Boeing 707 is used more for long hauls, non-stop, coast to coast, or across oceans. The Electra 188, with engines and propellers, is used mainly for intercity travel. I trust I have the facts correct, Victoria. He smiled at Vicky, who looked so much like him, fair hair, light blue eyes, and thoughtful bar gazed that it was a familiar joke. Well, anyhow, said Vicky's mother, if I had to get a 68 passenger safely on and off and fed in two hours, phew. Fortunately, I'm not going to have to do everything all by myself, Vicky answered. Gene Cox and I will work... We'll work the New York, Chicago, San Francisco run together on the Electra. 
They were having a leisurely early lunch at home and the castle before Vicky started out for Chicago. It was Thursday, February 12th, Lincoln's birthday, an appropriate day to be in Lincoln State, Illinois. The holiday, ex the holiday explained why Mr. Barr was not teaching at a nearby state university that day. The holiday did not account for Vicky's presence at home. As a flight stewardess, she often worked on holidays. Vicky popped in and out of the castle between assignments whenever she could. That wasn't often. Perhaps now the Federal Airlines was transferring her to the Electra and one of the transcontinental runs. She might be lucky enough to see her family more often. Her mother was wondering about the same thing. Will you be based in San Francisco? Mean that we won't see you much? Vicky went over her schedule again with her family. She and Jean Cox would fly regularly with the same crew on the New York, Chicago, San Francisco run and return flight. They would have at least an overnight stop in Chicago and some rest days in New York and San Francisco, mostly in San Francisco where our plane will be serviced. Also, since the passenger traffic was sometimes heavier in the east, Vicky and Jean would occasionally fly the New York, Chicago, and Chicago-New York turnaround run. That fast cruising speed of the Electra, up to 500 miles per hour, made these schedules possible. Anyway, I'll be in and out of Chicago, Vicky told her family. If I have time to run down to Fairview to see you, maybe I'll drive up to maybe you'll drive up to Chicago to see me. I'll come, her mother promised. Now if you don't start for Chicago, young lady, the lecture might take off for New York without you. Heaven forbid, I've been studying and practicing and dreaming of jet props, so had her stewardess friend, so had pilots and navigators, all of them had been training intensely for this new aircraft at Federal Airlines School in New York and Texas. I wouldn't miss today for anything. Her family drove Vicky to the Fairview station in plenty of time for the noon training was for the noon for the noon train to Chicago. Freckles there's Freckles their spaniel sensed Vicky's excitement and ran around the platform so wildly that for her safety they had to lock him in the car. Do you think, dear, Mrs. Barr, asked Vicky, that you will meet any specially interesting people on this new plane? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. They could hear the train coming. In another minute, it pop pounded in alongside the platform. Vicky's mother and sister hugged her. Good luck. See you soon. Mr. Barr picked up her overnight kit and helped her aboard the train. He found her and found her a seat. He bent over to kiss her. You look mighty little to be flying coast to coast, Victoria. I feel like an eagle in the sky, you know. The words of the spiritual. Dad, the train's starting to move. He got off, and then her family was waving to her, and the train slid quickly out of the station. She was on her way. By three o'clock, Vicky was in Chicago, and a little before four, she reached Midway Airport that allowed comfortably for an hour's pre-flight ground duties before departure time at 5 p.m. in the stewardess's lounge. Vicky changed into her blue uniform and cap, then picked up her topcoat, purse, and overnight kit. She walked over to the operations area where she initiated the crew check-in sheet, wrote in the time, and noticed that Jean Cox had signed in five minutes ago. Vicky found Captain Jordan in the busiest meteorologist room. She, Jean was there, too. Good afternoon, Captain Jordan, Jean reporting in for our very first Electra flight. 
The pilot and grain solid build man in blue uniform smiled at her and Jean grinned. Jean Cox looked like a very good-natured imp with her cropped brown hair and twinkling eyes. Vicky knew that her fellow stewardess, despite the elvish grin, were absolutely reliable, just as their million-mile Captain Tom Jordan was a rock of strength. He told his two stewardess, Dan McGrovin will be our co-pilot, and Chuck Smith, our navigator. Good men, both of them, I expect the five of us will work together fine as a unit. Now then, Captain Jordan gave Vicky and Jean the flight plan and briefed them on their route and the flight conditions for the trip. Vicky knew that the passengers who asked questions about the flight might include anyone from the businessman who flew his own private plane to an aviation engineer, so she listened carefully. The pilot planned to fly above the day's overcast at an altitude of 22,000 feet, or cruising speed will be about 400 to 420 miles per hour, he said. Captain Jordan then handed Vicky and Jean the stewardess briefing book, which they quickly read and initialized. She initialed. He answered a couple of questions for them, discussing the ETA estimate time of arrival, and said, See you aboard. Aye, aye, sir, said Jean from both of them. The two girls turned back steward. The two girls turned, hurried back to the stewardess lounge. There they prepared the necessary report forms for the trip. Do I look all right, Vic? Jean asked. They both checked their appearance, and stewardess had to be perfectly groomed and turned out before leaving the operations area of the building. They hurried down this flight of stairs into the hangar one. In the vast high shed, Captain Jordan had two men in blue uniforms with him. The five of them met beside the DC-7, which a repair crew was tuning up. The engines roared. Captain Jordan had to shout, Miss Vicky Barr, Miss Jean Cox, this is our first officer, Dan McGovern. The girls shook hands with their co-pilot, who was a large, quiet, serious-looking man, and our navigator, Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith was a young, small, and wiry, and wiry with the ingratiated grin. See you aboard, they all said. The two stewardess went outdoors onto the windy airfield. A little distance away, their immense silver Electra stood waiting for them. The plane was 104 feet long with a 99-foot wingspan. The sheer size looked the sheer size took their breath away. Vicky and Jean had 40 minutes work to do before the passengers came aboard. They had many things to check. It would be just too bad if one once aloft they discovered there was not enough water for making coffee or found the ventilation or heating system wasn't functioning perfectly. Hurrying up and down the long cabin aisle, they took pride in their handsome Electra. Wide reclining chairs were upholstered in blue and beige, and a few in pumpkin color. The silver-beige walls and curtains and coral-colored carpet harmonized. Figgy took special satisfaction in the semicircular observation lounge, with its wide windows in the rear of the plane. While Jean checked the service kit, all emergency equipment, cabin and laboratory lights, seat belts, and a dozen or more other items, Vicky was busy in the buffet area, midship, the two tall, wide metal buff buffets facing each other held drawers and compartments for everything she and Jean would need to store, heat, and serve 68 dinners and brew gallons of fresh coffee. 
Vicky found it a big job to check every item. Next, the caterer brought on board pre-cooked dinners and individual trays, water bags of coffee, and Vicky checked all the items off on her report form. She called through the open service door to the commissionary men on the ground, where short one dinner she saw the fueling crew hosting kerosene for the plane's four jet engines into the storage tanks inside the wing. Daylight was fading. The first of their passengers were gathering behind the gate, looking on. Captain Jordan came aboard and went into the cockpit. In a minute or two, his co-pilot and navigator followed. The cockpit door stood open until departure time. Vicky could see the complex instrument panel and the three airmen at work with their air maps and weather charts. She turned on the music a little early, but they all were keyed up about this flight, and it helped to have lightning music to fill the cabin. Twenty minutes later, Vicky and Jean were breathless and but ready. They, they re-powdered their faces and smiled expectantly at each other. Jean said, I must say, you look poised and calm. Calm? Who, me? Well, there's wishing us good luck. Jean said a fervent amen and pressed down on the switch which released the folding staircase from the plane to the ground. Slowly the stair... Slowly, the stairs for the passengers used dropped down into place, and Jean took up her post inside the main entrance door to greet their passengers. Vicky stood smiling in the craft cabin to greet them and assist them in getting seated. Mothers and babies with small children staggled aboard first. Vicky directed them to the window seats in the quieter locations. Miss, will you be able to heat my baby's bottle? Once one mother asked. Yes, I'll be glad to. Vicky turned to a young couple who looked like honeymooners. Their faces shone, and the girl wore flowers. Welcome aboard, Vicky said to them, and nearly added congratulations. She suggested the forward cabin a compartment, which was smaller and more private. Most of the passengers, many of them businessmen with briefcases, found seats by themselves in the large main cabin and beyond the buffet area in the cabin area the buffet area, in the cabin area, in the aft cabin. For several minutes, the wide aisles swarmed with people. Please be seated, Vicky said to them as they passed her, and they, then I'll hang up your coats. A white-haired, well-dressed couple came very slowly down the aisle. They must have been in their mid-sixties, Vicky thought. The elderly woman looked pleasant, but heavy-set. but the heavy-set man was scowling and grumbling about something. He had a look of authority, of command. Vicky went forward to help them. Good afternoon. Would you like to take a seat here? The man nodded curtly. He helped his wife into the window seat, then placed her hat box up on the luggage rack. If you don't mind, sir, said Vicky, may I put the hat box in the closet? It might bounce off the rack during flight, and the sharp corners might hurt somebody. The elderly man sat down as if he had not heard. Then he remarked, the hat box can stay where it is. Vicky gulped and said with her sweet smile, Yes, of course, if you prefer. The man's wife half smiled at her as if to say, You mustn't mind. Chapter 2 Vicky Meets the Bryants All the passengers were aboard now. Jean had closed the main cabin door. Captain Jordan flashing on the no-smoking fastened seatbelt sign, Vicky Barr went up and down the aisle checking to see that the passengers had fastened their seatbelts. The airplane began to vibrate. She made her welcoming announcement over the plane's public address system 
adding, Captain Jordan will keep you informed of flight data en route. Then both stewardess found seats. They found seats. The observation lounge was the only vacant place and strapped in for the takeoff. Suddenly the electrical was ta suddenly the electro was taxing and in an instant they were racing past the end of the runway. Even more suddenly, no whale, no warming up the engines. Zoom, whoosh, up they went. Jean and Vicky were so amazed that they stared at each other. Jet engines, they exclaimed, look at our rate of climb, and steep, almost straight up. The plane tore into the sky, the no smoking and fastened seatbelt sign went off. Here in the cabin there was music, air at a comfortable temperature, and pressure, newspapers, magazines, and pillows, which Vicky and Jean distributed. The captain's call button sounded on the board in the buffet area, and he spoke over the plane's communication system to, to, to the two hostesses. Everybody comfortable? Yes, Captain, said Vicky. You can tell our passengers we reached our cruising altitude within five minutes after takeoff. Anyone especially interesting aboard? We'll tell you soon, said Vicky. The passengers were interested in the Electra and asked questions. With 68 aboard, Vicky and Jean could not stop to visit, but they chattered with the passengers while they set up at each other's seats and tray tables for dinner and spread linen tablecloths. The white-haired couple, Vicky learned, were Mr. and Mrs. Marshall Bryant. The lady told her this. The elderly man had fallen asleep, as if overtired. One genial man was a movie star. One genial man was a movie star, perennially young, even though he had five children. Several passengers recognized him, judging by their interest, interested glances. He asked Vicky several stiff technique, technical questions about the jet-propelled Electra. From across the aisle, a woman touched Vicky's sleeve. My two youngsters are getting hungry. I'm afraid... Could you please? Yes, indeed. We'll serve dinner soon, and we'll always serve the children first. Vicky made her way along the slightly swaying plane forward to the buffet area. She was waylaid. She was waylaid by only three passengers on the way. One man wanted to know if there was a razor aboard which he could borrow. There was. A woman asked Vicky how to adjust the individual air vents and reading lights, and a determined-looking man announced to the stewardess that he was a vegetarian. Yes, sir, said Vicky, and made her smiling away to the sky kitchen. Once inside the closet, the according, once inside the closed according curtains, Vicky lost her smile, and her face became as desperate as Jean's in her struggle with several oven drawers full of turkey dinners. Hi, Jean, greeted her. Better put your smock on. Like me, I'm scared we'll still be serving dinners ten minutes after landing in New York. We'll do fine, Vicky said without believing it, and stared, started to make coffee. Parsley, parsley, where's the parsley, Jean muttered, somewhere in the overgrown filling cabinet. Oh yes, here. Can we spare extra rolls for some hungry kids? Vicky peered into the war roll warmer. Yes, we can. She collected nine rolls on the tray, one for each of the children aboard. On her way back to the buffet area, her empty tray, Vicky noticed something was wrong in the Bryant's area. Two men passengers were standing over Mr. Bryant, one loosening his collar and tire, and the call button rang. Vicky hurried to them. 
The people nearby were considerably snuffing out their cigarettes and opening air vents. My husband has a heart condition, Mrs. Bryan said anxiously to Vicky. I don't think he's having a heart attack, but he... Vicky can... Vicky concealed her alarm and looked at Mr. Bryant, who was laying back weakly in his chair. He was conscious but exhausted, breathing with some difficulty. His face was pale and sweaty. Uncomfortable, he muttered. He needs oxygen, Vicky said. I'll get him the oxygen bottle, Mrs. Bryant. Is he in any pain? No. That's good. I'll be right back. The two men standing by rather uselessly, Vicky said. Thank you, gentlemen. I am trained to give first aid. The men nodded and resumed their seats. Vicky sped to the storage compartment, being careful to look calm for the benefit of other passengers, and hurried back down the aisle carrying a walk-round oxygen bottle and a blanket. She paused a moment at the buffet area. Jean, is there a doctor on board? Not among my passengers. Who's sick? The elderly man, Mr. Bryant. Heart condition. Want me to notify Captain Jordan for you? Jean asked. I'll phone him. I'll report soon. Please start serving dinners, Jean. We must keep it pleasant aboard, just as usual. Vicky hastened back to the Bryants. She covered the man with the blanket. Miss Barr, I must tell you, Mrs. Bryant made an effort to control her trembling voice and her hands, that my husband is more exhausted than ill. He has, he had three quite tiring days in Chicago on business, and it's been hard on him. Vicky was soothingly. Certain people need extra oxygen at high altitudes, where the air is thin. Our cabin is pressurized, but for someone who is cardi who is a cardiac, and for more special needs, we carry extra oxygen. Has she? As she talked, she placed the oxygen bottle on Mr. Bryant's lap. He was able to hold it steady. Vicky opened the bottle's knob and then adjusted the constant flow mask snugly over Mr. Bryant's mouth and nose. Almost at once, his breathing grew easier. A little color returned to his face. When he seemed comfortable again, Miss Vicky removed the mask and closed the knob. Just the same, she was worried. He was still weak, and he was an elderly person with an impaired heart. Mr. Bryant, Mrs. Bryant, Mr. Bryant, Mrs. Bryant, if you wish to have the doctor's care within just a few minutes, Vicky said earnestly, we can arrange it for you. The pilot can make an emergency landing. Captain Jordan will radio ahead to the nearest airport to have a doctor and ambulance waiting to meet our plane. Mrs. Bryant murmured, that's wonderful. What do you think, Marshal? No, not necessary. Make your, myself... Make myself conspicuous, inconceivable to all these people. Not at all, sir, Vicky said. Captain Jordan will probably be able to make up the time. No, I'm all right. I only, only a weak spell. Thank you anyway. Vicky asked respectfully. Did the doctor give his, give his permission for you to fly, sir? The doctor almost certainly did not, Miss Bryant started. But the man interrupted. Full doctors would keep me in. A rocking chair. I have to do what I think is right. Vicky mentioned briefly the regulation for federal and all airlines. A person with a serious heart condition was not supposed to fly unless he had a doctor's written permission to do so on the ground that the trip was necessary. And unless he had someone to accompany him who could nurse him, the airlines relied on cardiacs not to board a plane without certification. If we had known in advance, Mr. Bryant... Vicky said, 
we would have been obliged to keep you off the plane. Well, you look well. You took excellent care of me, young lady. It worked out, didn't it? Mister Bryant shook her. Missus Bryant shook her head. You are so self-willed, Marshall. So stubborn. Vicky turned to her. The oxygen I gave your husband is only first aid, you know. Do you feel that a doctor should see him immediately? Well, I've seen him have much worse spells than this one. Not in the air, either. The elderly lady hesitated. He does seem to be much better now. Vicky said that it was really up to the captain of the plane to decide whether to make an emergency landing. She excused herself and went forward past curious passengers, unlocked the cabin door, and stepped into the cockpit. The cabin dozens of black and white dials on the instrument panel glowed. Needles flickered. The radar screen flashed. At a signal from Captain Jordan, the cock, the co-pilot took over the controls. Well, Vicky, how is that man? He's fairly close to fainting, Captain Jordan. He's elderly, a little overweight, and he has a heart condition. However, since he's had therapeutic oxygen, he's not in any distress, and his wife seems fairly satisfied with the way he looks now. I'd much rather land than take chances with a passenger's life, Captain Jordan looked at his wristwatch, thinking, I'll tell you what, observe him for ten minutes, and if he shows any signs of relapse, call me. We can come down at Clarksville. In any case, Vicky, we're going to have a doctor and ambulance on hand at New York. We'll radio ahead to LaGuardia Airport. Thank you, Captain, said Vicky. That's all for now, Vicky. Keep me informed. Vicky returned to the Bryants. Mr. Bryant was sitting up erect now. It was a relief to see that. She told them about the captain's decision. I'm so grateful, Mrs. Bryant exclaimed. I'm sure we won't need to make special make a special stop. Mr. Bryant apparently was not a man to yield a point so easily, but he did say, very good of your airline's people. Very good indeed. Vicky brought the Bryants their dinners right away, and both old people perked up as they ate the hot food. She raced through the serving all the other passengers. Jean carefully doubled up on jobs so that Vicky finished her in-flight chores on time. Do you think we have a sat down once since takeoff? Jean said breathlessly. Jean, you've been an angel on this trip. For a while there, I thought you had... Four hands. Save the compliments. We're coming in for a landing in 20 minutes. 21 minutes later, they were down at LaGuardia Airport. Vicky summoned the passenger agent. He and Mr. Bryant, his arm on the way out of the plane to the waiting ambulance, Vicky escorted Mrs. Bryant, walking slowly. Vicky waited for the Bryants outside the ambulance while the doctor checked over the elderly man. She hated to leave Jean alone to say goodbye to all the other passengers and pick up the cabin afterward, but she'd make it up to Jean some other time. The passenger agents had sent a man to locate the Bryant's car and chauffeur. He would bring the car onto the airfield as near to the ambulance as possible. The doctor stepped out and said to Vicky, All right, stewardess, he may go home. I think it's safe for this gentleman to drive to the city now. He helped Mrs. Bryant down out of the ambulance. Then Mr. Bryant, the car pulled up at that moment. Captain Jordan came hurrying over, carrying his flight papers. Mrs. Barr, are both Bryants all right? Yes, Captain. Tired, but all right. The Bryants thanked him, and he went off. The particularly thanked Vicky. They climbed into the car and asked Vicky if she wished to drive into the metropolitan New York with them. It's kind of you, but I have some duties here. 
Then you must come to lunch, Miss Bryant said. You've been a wonderful help, and I want a chance to thank you properly. I was only doing my job, said Vicky. Come to lunch tomorrow, Mr. Bryant barked at her. Can you? Vicky was so startled, she stammered. Yes, thank you. Mrs. Bryant smiled and told her the address. At twelve, Miss Barr, then, she said an odd thing. You know, my dear, we have a granddaughter whom we've never seen, Lucy. I hope she likes... I hope she's like you. Vicky must have looked puzzled, because Mrs. Bryant smiled again. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Goodbye for now, little Miss Barr. Chapter 3 The Story of Lucy Vicky went to the Bryant's house, not knowing quite what to expect. It was Friday the 13th, but since she was not foolish enough to be superstitious, the date alone did not account for her sense of something special about to happen. Well, can I expect lunch and a conversation? Vicky thought, and went up a little white, went up the, went up the white marble steps of the Bryant house. She was a little intimidated by its grandeur, and by the butler who admitted her. My goodness, this is much too grand for me. Vicky thought, they must be awfully rich. The butler said, "Who shall I say is calling?" Miss Vicky Barr. Vicky tried to stand up, taller than she was and look older. It never worked. Oh, yes, Miss Barr, you are expected. She gave the butler her coat and followed him from the entrance hall, past the formal high-ceilinged living room, and into the big, sunny sit-down room. It was, a cheerful, it was cheerful in here, with flowered chintels, green plants, and several extraordinary beautiful parkets in cages shaped like Patagonias and dollhouses. Vicky exclaimed aloud, Oh, lovely, without her meaning to just as the butler announced her. Miss Vicky, Mrs. Brandt was sitting half-hidden in an immense wing chair. She put aside the needlepoint she was working on and made a point of getting up to greet her young guest. How nice to see you again, Miss Parr. You were so busy yesterday on your plane that there was almost no chance to visit with you. I kept you busy for one thing, Mr. Brandt said, a tiresome old clogger, wasn't I, young lady? Vicky smiled shyly and said Mr. and Mrs. Bryant were kind to let her come. She asked Mr. Bryant how he was feeling. Better, thanks, better. Oh, I'm perfectly all right. He started to pace up and down. Mrs. Bryant changed the subject. She invited Vicky to sit next to her on the couch in the winter sunshine, and they chatted about the Electra. Mr. Bryant joined in with, the, with a question or two. He seemed less forbidding today. Still, Vicky thought, he is impos he, this imposing man would probably never be easy to get along with. She'd as soon attempt to be friends with the polar bear, he reminded her of an old, still powerful bear with his, with his heavy rolling gait and thatch of yellowish-white hair. Where's Dorm? he demanded. Not here yet, his wife said. Dorm telephoned to say he will be a little late. It was unavoidable, dear. Humph. Well, I'll lie down again for a few minutes. Excuse me, ladies. He abruptly thumped out of the room. Mrs. Bryant waited until he was out of the earshot, then smiled at Vicky. When I invited you to lunch yesterday, Mrs. Barr, said Mrs. Bryant, this, I thought you would be our only guest, but this morning a young lawyer who was doing a particularly important piece of work for us telephoned and asked whether... He couldn't see us about noon today, so he'll be here for lunch too. 
I'm sure you and I will have our visit anyway. Vicky was a little disappointed and offered to leave rather than intrude. No, indeed, Mrs. Brandt exclaimed. I want you to stay. Mr. Dorm is going to tell us about Lucy, our granddaughter, who we've never seen. She looked very thoughtful. Does that seem odd to you? Vicky was not quite sure what to answer, unless she said, Your granddaughter has always lived at a great distance from you? Yes, she has, in every sense. Tell me, Miss Barr, in the course of your steward's work, are you, have you ever been... In the course of your stewardess work, are you ever in San Francisco? I'll be in and out of San Francisco all the time now that I'm based here. That's extremely interesting. But Miss Bar but Miss Bryan did not say why. Well, shall we look at our parakeets? Our parakeets? Vicky walked along with Mrs. Bryan and admired the exquisite birds in the cages. Her elderly hostess pointed out the bird's markings in every tone of blue and rose and green, yet her mind seemed to be on something else. I hope you won't find it tiresome at lunch, Vicky, listening to a conversation about a girl you know nothing about. What is Lucy like? Vicky asked. Mrs. Bryant said helplessly, I don't know. It is odd, isn't it? Our daughter's daughter, and we don't know what she looks like except for an old snapshot. Lucy was ten when it was taken, and she's twenty-one now. From a desk drawer, Mrs. Bryant took a small faded snapshot in a frame and handed it to Vicky. Vicky studied it. The little girl's face was rather blurred. She could have she could have been any little girl sitting on a porch step. Her hair was either dark brown or light brown. It was hard to tell which. I suppose Lucy's hair might be darker by now, said Mrs. Bryant, as Lu as Vicky gave her back the snapshot, a daughter, Eleanor, wrote in one of her rare letters that Lucy had my disposition. They named her Lucy after me, in spite of everything, but I must be boring you. I'm very much interested, Mrs. Bryant. Well, I am rather keyed up about it, Mr. Dorn's visit. I'm rather keyed up about Mr. Dorn's visit. So many mem old memories come to mind today. The silver rings, for one thing. I hadn't thought about them in years. There are only two like them. Lucy has one, and I have the other. Vicky glanced at Mrs. Bryan's hand. Her hostess noticed. No, I've put mine away. I've never wear rings of any kind. Mrs. Bryant said they annoyed me, but this pair of silver rings has interesting history. They had an identical lace-like open design. Mrs. Bryant, Mrs. Bryant had long ago given one ring to her daughter Eleanor, and Eleanor in turn had given it the ring to her daughter, young Lucy. Almost all almost all Mr. Bryant and I know about our granddaughter is that she has the ring. We had a few facts about her schooling and a sketchy description of her. Eleanor wrote us about those things before she died. Mrs. Bryant looked down at her tightly clasped hand. As for the letters from Lucy's father, Mrs. Bryant, started past Vicky and past the birds. We never answered certain we never answered certain of those letters, and we were wrong, so terribly wrong. Then those grievous stories of Lucy came tumbling out. Mrs. Bryant, in telling Vicky, tried hard not to blame her husband, but Vicky understood that Marshall Bryant was a man who valued 
money and important connections above all else, Mrs. Bryant could not cope with his demeaning, demeaning ways. The Bryants had planned a brilliant marriage for their only child, and they were bitterly disappointed when Eleanor married against their wishes a boy who had little money and limited education. They felt unjustly that Jack was a fortune hunter. Marshall Bryant made several attempts to break up the marriage. When he failed, he disowned his daughter. He was determined that Jack Rowe should never get a hold of the Bryant money, no matter what the penalty to Eleanor or any children Eleanor would have. The young couple moved to California to get as far away from us as possible, I suppose, said Mrs. Bryant, and also because Jack had a job and opportunities there. As for Jack's family, they were scattered all over the United States and were not in touch. The young couple made several overtures the young couple made several overtures to the Bryants, especially after their daughter was born. They named her Lucy after her grandmother, but the old couple refused any reconciliation. They never saw their granddaughter. I wanted to, but Mr. Bryan was adamant. No one can blame Eleanor and Jack for feeling resentful. A rupture and silent for the many years and she, a rupture and silence of many years ensued. Once Mrs. Bryant wrote to her daughter offering aid for small Lucy, but Eleanor never answered. When young Lucy's mother died a few years ago, her father wrote this news to the grandparents and asked if they wished to attend the funeral. Marshall Brandt decided that they would not go. Mrs. Bryant murmured, It was hard to lose Eleanor without ever seeing her again. Jack Rowe had suggested that the Bryants might at long last wish to see their granddaughter, but Marshall Bryant hinted that Rowe's motives was a desire to gain their fortune. Young Lucy's father, as a result, felt freshly antagonized and wrote them a bitter letter, once more, the two families ceased to communicate. Recently, within the past year, Marshall Bryant had developed a severe heart condition. He's still active, said Mrs. Bryant, but he may not have long to live. This knowledge has modified his personality. He is more concerned than ever about what will become of his fortune after he and I pass away. I'm afraid he is not a charitable enough man to leave a book of it to institutions, for as he says, strangers to enjoy. Also, he now feels great remorse for disowning Eleanor and for refusing any contact with her daughter. As for herself, Miss Bryant said she had grieved for many years about the family rupture. For a long time, she encouraged Marshall Bryant to make amends for the past. Finally, this past Christmas day, they decided to find their granddaughter, Lucy Rowe, and arrange for her to inherit the Bryant fortune. If Lucy wishes to live with us, we'd be so happy. I'm so glad, Vicky said softly, that you're trying to find her. You're right to say trying, because all we definitely know about her is her last address in San Francisco. That's the one on Jack Rowe's letter five years ago. For a moment, Mrs. Bryant closed her eyes. Then she said matter-of-factly, A five-year-old address and an old snapshot aren't much to go on, are they? That's why we're relying on Mr. Dorn to locate Lucy for us. Mrs. Bryant explained that she and her husband were too elderly and too ill to travel to San Francisco and search for the girl themselves. Also, Mrs. Bryant said they hesitated to approach Lucy directly, either in person or by mail, after the antagonist would, 
and stirred they an antagonism which my husband and I, too, showed them. Eleanor and Jack naturally felt antagonized toward us. Antagonistic toward us. They are afraid of that feeling may have instilled in Lucy. She might not be glad to see her grandparents. So Marshall Bryant had engaged his lawyer firm to locate Lucy and bring her east. He planned to transfer a gorgeous part of the inheritance to her immediately. The law firm assigned Thurman Dorn, a young man, to do the traveling and investigating involved in finding Lucy. Mr. Bryant was pleased with the choice. Though Thurman Dorn was relatively new in the firm, his uncle, now dead, had for many years done fine work for Mr. Bryant through the same law firm. My husband and I feel we know young Thurman Dorn, said Mrs. Bryant. Our lawyers had told us that he came from Chicago, his hometown, with the highest recommendations from one of his law school professors. She mentioned the name of the law firm, Steele and Wilbur. Vicky recognized it as a respectable company. Mr. Dorn has persuaded us to stay entirely in the background and to let him act as intermediaries with Lucy. I do think that's one of the most discreet ways in such a delicate situation. A painful decision for a sick man and his elderly wife, Vicky thought. She said, I do hope Mr. Dorn's search will be successful in every way. Thank you, my dear. Mr. Dorn was in San Francisco there. Mr. Dorn was in San Francisco three or four weeks ago, and I got his search for Lucy underway. Unfortunately, he could not find her on that trip. She had been away, but perhaps he has come other perhaps he has some other leads or news to tell about us to tell us about today. Oh, I do think he'll bring Lucy with him. Oh, do you think he'll bring Lucy with him? Mrs. Bryant smiled shakily. I'm afraid to hope for so much. Let's go find my husband. He's feeling anxious too. When Thurman Dorn arrived a few minutes later, he was alone. Vicky was impressed by his air of professional competence and by his personal dignity. He was about 27, a formal, cool young man, evidently highly educated, very correct in his manners and attire. His meticulously tailored suit, his British-looking mustache, the stiff way he stood reminded Vicky of a fashion plate or perhaps a stone statue. She wished some she wished someone less formal, less unsentimental, were here to bridge the gap between young Lucy Rowe and her grandparents. Well, perhaps it took someone as cool, deliberate, and obviously hard-headed as Mr. Dorn to trace Lucy in the first place. Vicky could see how highly Marshall Brandt valued this young lawyer. Mrs. Bryant introduced Vicky and Thurman Dorn. He said, how do you do, to her with a delightful little bow and smile and remarked when Mrs. Bryant said, Vicky Barr is a flight stewardess with Federal Airlines, that he was an air travel enthusiast. However, he quickly turned away and had little further to say to Vicky during lunch. She was sure that Mrs. Bryant's mention of her work did not interest him and probably never registered with him at all. He was busy describing to Mr. Bryant and to Mrs. Bryant too, thoroughly secondarily, the progress of search for Lucy in San Francisco. Now, Mr. Brandt and Mrs. Brandt, you already know that this search is not proceeding as easily and quickly as we could wish. 
Don Thurman said. Reaching Miss Lucy takes time and patience, so we're effecting a reconciliation. The elderly couple listened to him, their hopes visibly rising and falling as he spoke. You know that I made only partial progress when, at your request, I visited San Francisco for a week and personally conducted a search for your granddaughter. I remember receiving your bills from St. Clair Hotel, Mr. Bryant said dryly. Young Doran accepted this with a deferential smile, and unfortunately I had to come back and tell you the disappointing news that by the time I located Lucy's present home and work address, she had gone off for a trip for, I believe, a month or more now. Mrs. Bryan turned toward Vicky. At least Mr. Doran learned that Lucy had some traveling with respectable friends, another girl, and the girl's mother. Mr. Bryant looked up from the serving from serving himself, seconds from the dish the maid offered. Well, sir, it's about a month now since you've been out there. You say Lucy will be back in San Francisco soon. How soon can you go about there again and get on with this job? Very soon, I hope, Don said, Don, Don said, although it would be a waste of my time with your money to wait around in San Francisco until Miss Lucy returns. Don't see how the girl, who you say is a secretary, can afford to stay. Don't see how a girl, who you say is a secretary, can afford to stay away longer than a month, Marshal Brandt grumbled. Doran, are you certain that this Lucy Rowe is actually our granddaughter? No, I am not certain. It's only a reasonable presumption at this point, Mr. Bryant. Let me actually see and talk to the girl. I want to question her, yes, discreetly about certain particulars of the Bryant family history, which she would like be likely to know. I want to see whether she has any of your old letters or photographs of yourself or your daughter, Eleanor. That brings me to my reason, or one of the reasons, for asking you to let me come today. The name Lucy Rowe isn't so unusual, Miss Bryant interrupted. Might be one of the more, might be more than one girl by that name in a city as large as San Francisco. Exactly my view too, sir, said Mr. Dorn. You have told me many details about the family history and shown me documents, but a few questions occurred to me. Also, it would help if, providing this, Lucy Rohr's identity, if you could let me study these documents and study any letters in your daughter, Eleanor's handwriting, or any family photographs. If you happen to have any available that I could examine, say overnight, for a few hours this afternoon. Good idea, said Marshal Bryant. Plenty of those things are in the safe, right here in the house. I'll lend them to you overnight, or for a day or two, whatever you say. That will be a help, said Mr. Dorn. I'll return them to you promptly. One thing puzzled Vicky. Why had no one at the luncheon table mentioned Jack Rowe, the girl's father? She mumbled her question to Mrs. Bryant. Because Lucy's father died two years ago in an auto accident, Mrs. Bryant answered her. Lucy did not write to tell us. Lucy had never written to us except one or two Christmas letters when she was a child, which my husband asked me not to answer, Mrs. Bryant sighed. So we have no way of knowing about Jack until Mr. Dorn investigated and reported to us that three weeks ago. I'm sorry about Jack, if only because his passing has left Lucy, have left Lucy 
entirely alone in the world. She has had her grandfather, Vicky. She has you and her grandfather, Vicky said. If we can find her, and if she can forget old difficulties. However, the elderly woman brightened. On the basis of what he's already learned, Mr. Dorn is hopeful that everything will work out. Then she said, Oh, Mr. Dorn, didn't you say you had some further worry about Lucy? Yes, Mrs. Bryant. I've had a letter from one of her friends whom I was unable to meet in person. He, her friend writes that Lucy is an accomplished swimmer and horsewoman. You know how Californians go in for sports and outdoor living? Her friend also wrote my firm. Sorry for... Sorry, I forget to bring this letter that Miss Lucy is fond of birds and knows something about them. She'll be interested in your parakeets, Mrs. Bryant said to his wife. She'll enjoy the swimming pool. Let's hope so. We old people might be dull company for her. She sounds like a delightful girl, Mr. Dorn. The lawyer said, from everything I've learned so far, she sounds like a charming girl and a girl of considerable character. Marshall Bryant looked gratified with his wife, looked so eager that Vicky felt almost afraid for her. How every detail which Mr. Dorn was able to supply increased their desire to meet their granddaughter. How disappointed they would be if Lucy were not all they wanted her to be, or if, heaven forbid, Dorn could not locate their granddaughter after all. As they were rising from their dinner table, Mrs. Bryant reminded the lawyer about the silver ring, if you want another look at it, it's in the safe, too. Thank you, Mrs. Bryant. I will examine it again. It will be interesting to learn whether Lucy Rowe still has the silver ring, which is twins to yours. Now, young man, how soon are you going to be back to San Francisco? Mr. Bryant pressed him. How about this week? The lawyer was inclined to wait until the next week in order to be sure that Lucy Rowe was back in San Francisco. He offered to telegraph her employees and friends there was to learn if, when she had returned. This was reasonable. The Bryants had to agree, but they were disappointed about the delay. I am sorry about the delay, too, said the lawyer, but let us make hastily now. Let's be a little cautious and discreet. There is a large inheritance involved here, and you are well known, and if any false moves are made, they'd invite a lot of publicity and newspaper stories, pictures in the paper, and so forth. Mr. Bryant made a gesture of distaste, while Mrs. Bryant pretended to shudder. There was a moment of awkwardness. The lawyer turned to Vicky and said, I understand that you uh, were of service to Mr. Bryant yesterday when he was taken ill. Not at all, said Vicky. I'm just sorry Mr. Bryant didn't feel well enough to enjoy his flight on the Electra. Mr. Mr. Dorn, when you fly to the out west... Mr. Dorn, when you fly out to the West Coast, do you go on the Electra via Chicago? She said it only to make conversation, thinking some day Dorn might be one of her passengers. But suddenly his expression changed. She was surprised at the odd look on his face. Was he thinking of something else? Mrs. Bryant said, I believe, Mr. Dorn, you told us your mother lives in Chicago. Yes, I sometimes go home weekends to see her very occasionally. Well, of course. Well, I think my husband is waiting to see you. Oh, yes. Will you excuse me, Mrs. Bryant? Miss, he would forget. Oh, yes. Will you excuse me, Mrs. Bryant? 
Miss, uh, he had forgotten her name. The young lawyer followed Mr. Bryant to the library. Vicky felt that it was time to say goodbye to her hostess, but Mrs. Bryant had led her back into the room with the par parakeets. By now the sun had moved far to the end of the room, and the birds were asleep. Mrs. Bryant took Vicky's hand. I hope all this talk about our granddaughter wasn't dull for you. On the contrary, Mrs. Bryant, I couldn't help thinking, suppose it were my grandparents, who I'd never seen, who were looking for me. You're sympathetic, Vicky. I wonder you're going to be in San Francisco often, Vicky nodded. Then I wonder whether I could ask you to do me a great favor, but only if it won't take too much of your time. Vicky said and meant it, that if the favor had anything to do with Lucy, she would be only too happy to give it her free time. Mrs. Bryan smiled. Then I wish very much that you would see whether you can learn anything further about her granddaughter. Well, I have every confidence in Mr. Dorn and his careful, discreet approach. This delay is very hard. Even another week or ten days seems so long, time, so long a time to wait. I'll be in San Francisco day after tomorrow, Vicky said. Wonderful. If Lucy is back by then, won't you try to telephone her? and give her my love, and all I have is her last address in Serrato Heights, in the suburbs. It's five years old. I think Mr. Dorn mentioned that she had moved in with her friends in the city in order to be nearer to her place of employment. I wish I had thought to write down the firm's name, but we were leaving everything, all the details, to Mr. Dorn. Do you think Mr. Dorn will consider that I interfering? I wouldn't want to cause any complications for him. I don't see how you could. Mrs. Bryant went to her desk for Lucy's last address and copied it for Vicky. It might be more tactful, though, not to let Mr. Darn know that you are taking part, Vicky agreed. And there, let's not mention it to my husband either, Mrs. Bryant said with a gleam of mischief. There, here's the address, my dear. Thank you so very much. Don't say that yet, Mrs. Bryant. First, let's see what else I can do. She thanked Mrs. Bryant for her hospitality and said goodbye. Mrs. Bryant walked to the front door with Vicky and stood looking out over her. And stood looking after her as she went down the marble steps. She looked so hopeful and yet afraid to hope that what Vicky thought. I'm going to do everything I can to help those two old people. Chapter 4. A Puzzling Discovery I don't even want to hear anyone suggest that we go sightseeing around San Francisco today, said Jean Cox from the other twin bed on Monday morning. I want to stay right here in our nice hotel room and sleep. I wasn't going to suggest sightseeing. Not yet, anyway, said Vicky at the mirror. Then why are you up and dressed so early? After those weekend runs we put in, why aren't you unconscious too? On Saturday, their crew had flown from New York to Chicago, stayed overnight in Chicago, and on Sunday had flown from Chicago to San Francisco. Now they were to have a day in San Francisco to rest. Vicky figured she would rest later and look for Lucy Rowe first. She told Jean her plans. Well, Jean yawned and stretched under the covers. All I can say is that a frail-looking, dreamy-looking little blonde like you has more stamina than some of us husky people. Vicky grinned. Is there anything I can do for you before I leave? Just go away, my love, and let me sleep. 
They arranged to be in touch later in the day. Vicky softly let herself out into the hotel corridor and went downstairs to the busy lobby. Part of the fun of being a flight stewardess was living all over the United States and staying at pleasant hotels where the airlines put up their crews. Along with her breakfast, Vicky enjoyed a magnificent view of San Francisco's hills. Ever since talking with Mrs. Bryant, Vicky had kept Lucy Rowe's old address safely in her purse. Now she took it out. At the hotel desk, she asked for directions to Saruto Heights. Vicky made up her mind. Vicky made her way there, riding up and down steep hills, walking down a long wooden stairway from one street level to another. She climbed past a cliff top park with white painted statues high above beach high above beach and ocean. San Franciscans certainly have their ups and downs, Vicky thought, puffing, but what of you? On these on three sides she looked down over the blue Pacific. The air was sea fresh cool, spring like. Vicky was so enchanted that she almost forgot about the address in her purse. It led her to a modest leafy street and an unpretentious cottage. There were there were a yard and an attempt at a flower bed. Children toys littered on the porch. When Vicky rang the doorbell, a pleasant young woman in shirt and jeans came to the door. She looked not much older than Vicky or than Vic- Lucy's age, 21. I'm looking for Lucy Rose, said Vicky, and introduced herself. She was careful not to mention the Bryans, not to intrude on the lawyer's province. She said she understood the Rose lived here, or used to. I wonder whether you could tell me what Lucy Rose's address is now. My goodness, I should be able to, Lucy and I went to high school together. We're old neighbors, too. After her mother died, my family bought their house, this house. Come in, Miss Barr. I'm Jill Joseph. Come in, don't mind the boys. The living room seemed to be overrun with very small boys and puppies. Young Mrs. Joseph shooed the whole group outdoors, and she and Vicky sat down to talk. I haven't any address for Lucy at the moment, Mrs. Joseph said, because she's away. Lucy is a darling. Are you a friend of hers? I'm a friend of a friend of hers, Vicky said, an elderly lady who hasn't heard from Lucy or had any news of her since Eleanor, Mrs. Rowe died. Why, that was five years ago. Would you fill me in, Vicky asked. Jill Joseph nodded. Five years ago, Lucy and I still had another year to go in high school. Then she lost her mother. The house was quite a lot of work for Lucy and her father, you know, how full the last year of high school is, and... Mr. Rowe worked hard at She named a large San Francisco department store, so Lucy and her father moved to a small apartment near here, and we bought their house. I see. What sort of work did Mr. Rowe do? For a long time, he worked at any job the department store gave him. The Rowe's never had an easy time of it financially. The neighbors hesitated. The neighbor hesitated. It was hard on Lucy's mother. She seemed to be used to more than the Rowe's could afford. A lot of us wondered about Eleanor Rohr, not that she ever complained. Anyway, the young woman went on briskly. Lucy's father finally worked himself up to a head of the store delivery service, I think it was. What was Jack Rowe like? Vicky asked. Nice, the most devoted husband and father you ever saw. He would have made a good doctor. He was so kind and patient and gentle. So this was the son-in-law the Byrons had considered unworthy of their daughter, Vicky thought. Lucy's mother was nice, too, the neighbor said, though she was quite quiet and sort of sad. 
Sometimes she worried about what would become of Lucy. Lucy used to try to laugh her way out of it. My goodness, I'm chattering. Won't you tell me more about Lucy, Vicky said. I'm not sure what she looks like. Well, she's taller than you are, and slim, but she's strong. Good at all sports, and she knows a lot about nature lore. Mr. Dorn has reported that, Vicky recalled. Brown hair, brown eyes, only sometimes they look hazel. Mrs. Joseph said she's, she's active and friendly. Isn't it hard to describe someone you know? The chief thing about Lucy is she's a nice person, and it shows. Does she miss her mother very much? Vicky asked. And her father? Yes, terribly. Vicky is such a loyal and warm-hearted person. She always befriends lost dogs and hungry cats and people who need her. It was out of loneliness and a need to be with people, the neighbor said, that after her father died in an auto accident two years ago, Lucy moved in downtown into downtown San Francisco to live with another girl and her girl's mother. Also, Lucy wanted to be near her job. After graduation from high school, she had taken an intensive three-month business course and had been working as a secretary ever since, nearly four years now. Can you tell me the name and address of her employer and the girl and her mother? Vicky asked. Yes, I'll write them down for you, but you won't be able to see Mary and Mr. Scott. They've gone off on a trip. Lucy is away too. So Don had learned, Vicky reminded herself. She asked, do you know when she'll be back? She wasn't sure herself when she called me to say goodbye. Why don't you ask at the woman's hotel where she's been living? Maybe she left word. It's the Hotel Alcott. The woman's hotel? Vicky felt confused. I thought Lucy had been living with Mary and Mrs. Scott. Well, they she did until recently. I'm not sure how recently. Lucy and I aren't in constant touch, Joseph explained that the Scots household was a small one, and Lucy had felt she was crowding them. Vicky could not remember whether Mr. Dorn had reported where Lucy lived. She had the impression, and perhaps the Bayans did, too, that Lucy lived with the girl and her mother, with whom she was now traveling. Well, Vicky thought she'd cleared up this point. I'll telephone Lucy's employer, Vicky asked. Couldn't they tell me where, when she'll be back? I think she gave up her job at the Interstate Insurance Company, though you can ask them. Gave up her job? Doran had not reported this. Why? Something about a new job. The kids were having a squabble, and I couldn't get it straight over the phone. You mean Lucy starts on a new job when she comes back from her trip from the, with the Scots? Lucy isn't traveling with Mary and Mrs. Scott. I think traveling is part of her new job. This news did not tally with Mr. Doran's report, or more accurately, it went beyond the lawyer's report. Well, it was possible Lucy had been away during the period that Doran was looking for her, and then had returned to give her job, to give up her job and take a new one. Then, too, Jill Joseph admitted she didn't have all the facts straight. I'll inquire at the Hotel Alcott, Vicky said, and at the Interstate Insurance Company. Try telephoning the Scots, too. Perhaps they're back now and heard from Lucy. Vicky and Jill, Vicky and Jill Joseph chattered a, lo a while longer. Vicky gathered that Lucy's life was rather bleak, even though she had friends and one or two not important bouts. She missed her family and home and felt alone. Evenings after work, she often kept herself busy taking college courses and attending church choir practice. 
I guess the Reverend Mr. Hall has done more than anyone to help Lucy feel less, al less alone, Mrs. Joseph said. He's a wonderful man. He knew her parents, and he's known Lucy all her life. He used to be in charge of a church here in Sorrento Heights, but he's been transferred to Russian Hill. I'll give you his address, too. A few minutes later, Vicky thanked Jill Joseph and said goodbye to her. You've been a great help, more than you know. Anything I can do for Lucy? Well, she needs all the help and love her friends can give her. How wonderful it was going to be for Lucy, Vicky thought, as she traveled back to the center of town to discover that her grandparents cared for her. What a happy change in her life th there would be. On the way, Vicky stopped at the drugstore and called the Scots from a telephone booth. The telephone rang repeatedly without answer. Vicky then called the Interstate Insurance Company and talked to a personal manager. Miss Lucy Rowe, he repeated. Just a moment while I look up her card. A pause. Miss Rowe resigned from our employee on January 22nd. Vicky scribbled down this date and noted that it was now Monday, February 16th, a little less than a month ago, just about the time Mr. Dorn had said she left San Francisco. Well then, Dorn was right. Vicky asked whether the personal manager could tell her anything further about Lucy. Well, I can tell you that she she's an excellent secretary, was with us for over three years, and we're very sorry to lose her. That's a fine record, isn't it? Thank you very much, sir. Vicky hung up. She telephoned the Scots twice again on her way back downtown, way back to downtown San Francisco. No answer. On a third call, a man's voice answered. Mary Scott? She and her mother went away on a long trip. This is her, the superintendent. I'm in their place fixing a leaky pipe. No, ma'am, I don't know when they'll be back home. Thank you, Vicky said. Next, she tried Reverend Mr. Hall's number. Here, she kept getting busy signals, and she decided to stop for lunch, then visit Lucy's place of residence. Arriving at the Hotel Alcott in the early afternoon, she found it to be a pleasant, friendly, plain sort of place. A few people, mostly women, were in the lobby. She spoke to the desk clerk. I wonder if you could help me. I'm looking for Miss Lucy Rowe. Oh, yes, Lucy. The middle-aged woman behind the desk smiled, but shook her head. You won't find Lucy here, young lady. She checked out. Can you please tell me when and where she is now? The woman hesitated. Vicky produced her airline identification card to introduce herself and explain that she had a message to deliver to Lucy. The woman seemed satisfied. She opened a ledger. Lucy checked on. Lucy checked out on. Let me see. Saturday, February seventeenth. That would be today. What? That would be today. Was Monday, February sixteenth. Only nine days ago. Yet Mr. Dorn reported that Lucy had left San Francisco a month ago. Vicky could not account for the discrepancy. She asked the desk clerk, I wonder whether Lucy has been out of town, taking any sort of trips in the last month or two. Yes, recently, some of the girls here persuaded her to go off for weekends with them to ski or hike in the mountains. Can you tell me, Vicky asked the desk clerk, whether Lucy was away about a month ago? I'm sorry, I don't remember the dates. Well, will you please tell me one more thing? Vicky was trying to figure dates starting with the fact of Dorn's visit about a month ago. Did Lucy live at the Hotel Alcott a month ago? The woman consulted the ledger again. Yes, Lucy was with us just barely a month. It was possible, Vicky thought. 
that Lucy might not yet have moved to the Hotel Alcott at the time of Don's visit. If you tried to locate Lucy, Miss Barr, said the clerk, I think the best way to do it would be through Mr. Heath. Who is Mr. Heath? Who is Mrs. Heath? A very nice older woman who is now Lucy's employer. Mrs. Elizabeth Heath, a writer, gray-haired, well-dressed, and distinguished-looking. She stayed with us at the hotel for a while. She was looking for a secretary companion, and Lucy turned out to be just the right girl for the job. The hotel clerk said with a certain pride and satisfaction, It's a happy arrangement for both of them, I think. Vicky was surprised, but she felt better. Here was definite and reassurance news of Lucy. She asked the woman for Mrs. Heath and Lucy's address. They haven't sent us their address yet, the woman said. Probably they're just traveling around. Mrs. Heath had a car, and as I understood it, her plan was to travel around California and stay at inns here and there and write her memoir in a leisurely sort of way. Mrs. Heath may rent a house. It sounds like a lovely job for Lucy. A lot of the girls here at the Elkhart would like to have such a job. It does sound like a pleasant job, Vicky agreed. But how can I find Lucy, miss? The clerk said her name was Mrs. Stacy. Hasn't anyone heard from Lucy since she left? Not even a postcard? She's been gone only a little over a week, the hotel clerk pointed out. She'll write to her friends here, I'm sure. She may already be in touch with the minister, Mr. Hall. He's a great friend of hers. Vicky said she had his address and telephone number and would call him right away. She thanked Mrs. Stacy for all her kindness. When Vicky again telephoned the Reverend Mr. Hall, she was able to reach him. He was rather chary of giving any information on the telephone. Vicky explained who she was and told him a little of why she was looking for Lucy Rowe. Oh, I see. As a matter of fact, Miss Barr, I myself would like to know where Lucy is at the moment. The minister's voice was friendly and direct. Vicky thought she heard an undertone of worry. Mr. Hall, I'm here at the Hotel Alcott, and they've told me Lucy has a fine job with Mrs. Heath. Yes, I know. Everybody is enthusiastic about Lucy's new job, except myself. I advise her to consider and make haste slowly. But she, Vicky, heard voices in the background. However, I can't go into this on the telephone. May I come to see you, Mr. Hall? Vicky asked. It's important for me to locate Lucy. Yes, indeed, though today I'm all filled up. He suggested that Vicky telephone him again in a day or two. Vicky promised she would and thanked him and hung up. Vicky went back to her hotel and wanted to pack and to rest so that she would be fit for work. She was scheduled for 8 a.m. electric for an ADM electro flight the next morning. Jean Cox was rested after extra sleep. What did you find out about Lucy Rowe? she asked. Don't ask me don't ask me yet. I haven't any answers. Only some new questions. Chapter five The Girl in the Portrait From San Francisco to Chicago on Tuesday and back on Wednesday left Vicky free by Thursday morning. She at once telephoned the minister he said she might come over immediately. Vicky found her way to Russian Hill, an area of steep, far-flung streets crisscrossed with leafy lanes. The church she was seeking was a handsome modern stone building. The minister's residence next door, in contrast, was one of the old wooden houses with lace-like balconies and ornate cupolas that surveyed the San Francisco earthquake and fire. 
A housekeeper admitted her and led her into Mr. Hall's study. Vicky's first impression of the minister was of a pair of extraordinarily perspective eyes. He received Vicky simply without any ceremony and made her feel at ease. She presented her credentials, wishing she could tell the minister about Lucy's grandparents and their wonderful plans for her. I'm glad you have come to me, Miss Barr, he said. Are you a little worried, too, about Lucy? I don't know what to think, Mr. Hall. I had been advised by Lucy's friends in New York that she was probably on vacation traveling with friends. Now I find that she isn't exactly how it is, unless there's been some misunderstanding. The minister said that was possible. Let me speak frankly to you, Miss Barr. I wasn't keen about Lucy taking this job, at least not so quickly. I asked her to get a little better acquainted with Mrs. Heath first, before she went off traveling with her. It's true Mrs. Heath showed Lucy unimpeachable references, and she seemed to be a substantial person. Did you meet Mrs. Heath? Vicky asked. I very much wanted to, the minister said, but unfortunately the lady was too ill with a virus to see me. We did have a pleasant telephone conversation. I was left with the impression that she is above reproach. Still, I'm not satisfied. He looked out the window where the lemon tree stood. You see, the minister said that Lucy had met Mrs. Heath at a woman's hotel and liked her from the start. In some ways, Mrs. Heath reminded Lucy of her mother, whom she missed. Within a short time, only about a week, they were good friends, and Mrs. Heath asked Lucy whether she would like to be her secretary and traveling companion. Lucy came to Mr. Hall to talk it over with him. Mrs. Heath's offer was attractive, a long-term job, interesting work, a good salary, plus her, all her living costs paid for by Mrs. Heath, and a chance to travel. Lucy felt confined, living in the city and working at a routine job, so Mrs. Heath's plan appealed to her. I pointed out to Lucy that she needn't be in such a hurry to give up her job and accept this new one, said the minister, but she told me Mrs. Heath was eager to start work on her book. At any rate, as Lucy pointed out to me, they did not rush off at once. Lucy gave up her job at the insurance company for the next two weeks, helped Mrs. Heath prepare for her, her trip, and did some library research for her. I must admit Lucy seemed interested and happy said the minister. In those two weeks, Mrs. Heath allowed Lucy plenty of time to wind up her own affairs in San Francisco. Then, using Mrs. Heath's car, or rather a car which Mrs. Heath rented for several months, they started out. When did they start? Vicky asked. It was on a Saturday, I believe, the first Saturday in February. Vicky scribbled down the stay with a note. And did they say anything where they were going? Oh, yes, certainly, the, mister, the minister answered. I don't wish to give you the wrong impression about Mrs. Heath, the minister said to Vicky. I only wish Lucy had gone more slowly and made sure she and Mrs. Heath really would be compatible over a period of several months' close association and checked a little on Mrs. Heath's financial ability to pay all the bills and Lucy's salary. Are you... Their plan... The minister told Vicky was to head slightly north and east of Sacramento into Mother Loud country. Mrs. He Mrs. Heath had made an earlier trip through the hill region and had said she might possibly rent a house in the area. I received a post from a postcard from Lucy," said Mr. Hall. "Just a moment." The minister picked up a picture 
postcard from his desk and handed it to Vicky. It was postmarked Pacerville, California, February 17th at 4 p.m. Vicky glanced at the desk calendar. February 17th was the first Saturday in February. Wasn't this postcard mailed the same day that Lucy and Mrs. He started out? Vicky asked. Yes, evidently. Lucy mailed the postcard en route. She says nothing. Actually, beautiful country. Beautiful weather. We'll write soon. But she hasn't written since, Miss Barr. Not to me, or so far as I can learn, to any of her friends. And I don't know where she is. Vicky felt a sharp misgiving. Have you, have you planned to take any steps to get in touch with her, Mr. Hall? He hesitated. It's not quite two weeks since Lucy left. I believe they plan to work on Mrs. Heath's book, so that possibly Lucy hasn't had a chance to write to me. I don't mean to alarm you, Miss Barr, but I think you are a little alarmed, Mr. Hall. But he thought for a moment. Now that you pose the question, yes, I am uneasy about Lucy. Did a Mr. Dorn ever call you? Dorn? No. That troubled Vicky. She also wondered what really lay behind Lucy's change of jobs. She remarked as much to Mr. Hall. Yes, I feel there is more to know about Lucy's job situation than we do know, he said. He reflected. Maybe Gravy could tell you something more. Vicky smiled. I beg your pardon? Did you say someone's name is Gravy? The minister smiled back at her. Graves. Nolan Graves. He and his wife are young people, friends of Lucy. She was the one who dubbed him Gravy. His, he's a painter and he's been doing Lucy's portrait. I think that's because, I think that, I think that because of work on the portrait, the Graves had been seeing Lucy often, and had been seeing Lucy oftener more than anyone else had just before she left. Do you think Mr. and Mrs. Graves would be willing to talk to me about Lucy? Vicky asked. We'll see. Mr. Hall picked up the telephone and dialed a number. He talked to Knowlton Graves paving the way for Vicky. Yes, I think Miss Barr can come over right away. Vicky nodded. What? Yes, I'll tell her. Thanks very much. The minister hung up. He turned to Vicky. Graves wanted me to tell you, with due apologies, that he has a heavy work schedule. If you're willing to go over to Telegraph Hill for just a short visit, he'd be very glad to see you. Vicky got to her feet. Even a few minutes could, even a few minutes talk could be revealing. Mr. Hall wrote down the Graves' address and gave Vicky directions for getting there. She thanked the minister warmly for all his help and kindness. He said just as warmly, I feel you and I are in a league for Lucy's best interests. He smiled and his eyes seemed to look through and through her. Perhaps you have more news of Lucy than you were willing to confide in me on a first visit. Come back and see me again, whether or not you learn any news. Graves was a large, noisy young man. He boomed over at her. He boomed at her that his wife Maggie was out shopping. He'd made a mess of the studio, and if she was a friend of Lucy, how come he'd never met her before? Vicky followed him into a workman-like studio, explaining that she was only a friend of a friend, or their mutual friend. How's that again? Gravy boomed at her. He looked at her very sternly. Interesting planes in your face. Ever sit up for a portrait? Vicky perched on the painted splatter wooden chair and said firmly, No, I'm afraid I'm too busy to. Can we talk about Lucy? Okay, gosh, you look serious. 
There isn't anything wrong, is there? About Lucy, I mean. I don't know what anything... I don't know that anything's wrong, Vicky said carefully. It's just I've heard some confused reports about her, and she's gone off traveling with a woman she hardly knows. That wasn't wise. My wife feels the same way you do, though I say that Heath woman sounds all right. Don't worry. Graves moved a pile of unframed canvases out of the way and sat down facing Vicky. Lucy likes that Mrs. Heath, she was motherly to Lucy, I guess. That's why. Vicky asked whether Greaves had learned from Lucy. They had not. The Graves was untroubled about it. He said briskly, All I want is for Lucy to drop by here one of these days so I can finish her portrait. Want to see it? He rummaged through a pile of canvases and pulled, one, and pulled out one and set it on an easel so Vicky could see it. She took a long, curious look, allowing for the painter's rather abstract style she could see from Graves' portrait that Lucy Rowe looked like a girl with big eyes, light brown hair, and rather square face, which in feminine version recalled Marshall Bryant's. Vicky could also see a little of Lucy's pleasant personality from the ease way she tossed a bulk green wool scarf around her shoulder and her friendly half-smile. Lucy looks about... Lucy looks as if she's about to speak, Vicky said. Well... We did talk a lot while we were doing this portrait, Graves said. She was all excited about the job offer from Mrs. Heath. Did she ever talk about anyone else? Vicky asked about her parents or or her grandparents. It's funny that you should ask that. Sure, she always talked about her parents. But during the sitting, a lot of stuff about her grandparents came out. Funny, she never would have mentioned their name. It was such a touchy subject with her. Graves looked searchingly at Vicky. I guess it's all right to repeat it. It's not exactly a secret. A confidence, maybe. Well, Lucy told Maggie and me that she always felt no one but her parents actually really wanted her or cared about her. She just couldn't believe her friends cared a whole lot about her or that someday she'll find a husband who cares for her and her needs. You know what that feeling comes out of? From the way her grandparents rejected her and her parents all of Lucy's life made them feel humiliated, left out, wouldn't answer their letters, not even cared to meet their granddaughter. These rows didn't have any close relatives. They sort of huddled together by themselves. Then Lucy lost her mother, and then her father. So now Lucy feels alone and unwanted. Well, all along came this Mrs. Hurt, Mrs. Heath, and she was motherly to Lucy. Besides, she needed Lucy. She wanted Lucy to be with her, to help her with her book and to be her traveling companion. She even decided to go to the hills to please Lucy. Pretty nice of her. Hey, you should have seen how much happier that girl was all of a sudden. My wife says that's why Lucy took the new job almost without hesitation. I tell you, Lucy's heart is in that job. Vicky felt puzzled as she listened to all this. How could a lawyer like Mr. Don, a man trained to make investigations, not have unearthed the fact that Lucy's job with Mrs. Heath, except that Mrs. Stacy had said Lucy had been in and out of San Francisco several times with her friends, just around the time of Mr. Dorn was here. Mrs. Graves did a man Mr. Graves, did a man named Dorn get in touch with you? Dorn never heard of him. Did Lucy mention a Mr. Dorn to you? Graves shook his head. 
Well, Vicky thought, Dorn and Lucy must have just missed each other, and some of her friends must have given a garbled or incomplete account of her trip and plans and the respectable older lady with whom she was traveling. You said Mrs. Heath and Lucy were going into the hills. Can you tell me where in the hills? Vicky asked. About three hours' drive from San Francisco, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, Gravy said. It's east of the Grand Valley, in the Mother Loud country, with with all those little pea-growing, pear-growing towns like Placerville and Auburn, Auburn and Grass Valley. It's west of the mountains on the way to Donors Pass, just about where the hills really start to roll and climb and start turning into mountains. That's where Lucy spent some happy vacations with her parents when she was a child. As Graves talked, Vicky visualized a map of California. In her mind, she tried to fix the location. Isn't Maud Loud Country? Isn't the Mother Loud Country where they first discovered gold in 1848? Vicky asked. That's right. That's right. That was a gold rush county. They're still mining a little gold in them near the hills, Gravy said with a grin. Vicky asked him what this stretch of hills was like. It's high, about 1,500 or 2,000 feet elevation. And Lucy talked about the pine trees. There was a little town scattered through there, and a lot of t small two- or five-acre pear farms and almond farms. Lucy said it was really pretty, kind of quiet and peaceful. Not too many people around. Isolated, Vicky suggested. Well, Gravy thought... Gravy thoughtfully rubbed his chin. I suppose if Mrs. Heath wanted to find a real private location to hold up and write her book, she wouldn't have too many neighbors to bother her in the Sierra foothills. Especially if she didn't stay at inns, if she rented a house. So Lucy and Mrs. Heath were somewhere in the Sierra foothills around a pear-growing town. Gravy had said that there was about three hours' drive time from San Francisco, by private plane, Vicky figured it would take much less time. If she visited and inquired at the main village in the area, she probably would learn something about the two women. Strangeness in the rural area would surely be noticed. That's what I would do, Vicky thought. It's not much of a trip, and it wouldn't be too difficult to look around a bit. I did promise Miss Bryant I would do my best. She noted Gravy's glance and the embarrassment toward the large clock on the wall. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Graves, said Vicky. Mr. Hall told me I mustn't detain you too long. Gosh, I'm sorry. I guess I told you everything I could about Lucy. Maybe Maggie w could have remembered something more. Vicky said she hoped to meet his wife another time and thanked the painter and went to the door. If you see Lucy, said Graves, letting her out, tell her one more sitting will finish up the portrait. So long now. If Lucy, if she saw Lucy, she wanted to try. Vicky found the drugstore, ordered a Coke, and took her bid sheet out of her purse. The bid sheet showed her schedule. The bid sheet show, showed her scheduled flying days and her day off. She had three days rest today, tomorrow, and Saturday. Her next assigned flight with Jean Cox was not until 9 a.m. on Saturday. That was fine. On Sunday, that was fine. This afternoon, she could arrange to rent a private plane and study maps. Tomorrow, and if necessary, Saturday, she would search for Lucy. That should be enough time. Vicky had one misgiving. 
Suppose Lucy and Mrs. Heath were no longer in Pacerville region, where Lucy had mailed the postcard. Suppose Mrs. Heath had decided to move on, or fleeting suspicious occurred to Vicky. Suppose Mrs. Heath had never intended to settle in that region. The whole story of the sudden job offer disturbed Vicky as much as it had the minister. There's only one way to find out, Vicky decided, and that's to go look for Lucy Rowe. Chapter 6 Vicky Searches The next morning, Vicky went to Navarro Airport in Marine County, 40 minutes from San Francisco. Having been out there late yesterday afternoon, she was briefed for her flight. Pacerville, her first stop, was about 125 miles away. Joe and Ed Foster, the men from whom she was renting the Cessna 150, had remarked on her air map the routes, landmarks, and sites of small airports in and near Pacerville and surrounding villages. The trim little Cessna 150 was a single-engine, two-paced airplane with landing sites, wing lights for navigation, and two-way radio. Vicky carefully went over the plane, making a line check. It was in A1 condition and fully fueled. She climbed in with a lift from Joe Foster. All okay? He asked. Vicky smiled and nodded. Now remember, the plane has a fast rate of climb. Watch it. I remember. Yesterday afternoon, she had taxied the Cessna around a little to see how the plane handled and had fallen in love with the instantly responsive aircraft. Vicky said, I'll bring her back late this afternoon, Mr. Foster said. Bring her back late this afternoon, Mr. Foster said. She would rather not do night flying in an unfamiliar airplane over a country which was new to her. Foster waved. Happy landings. Thank you. See you. Vicky closed the door, and her feet on the pedals cracked the throttle forward slightly and released the brakes and pressed the starter button. The plane went skimming along the airship. As the Cessna left the ground, Vicky felt she was simply floating up into the air. While she was figuring out how rapidly to reach the altitude and airspeed she wanted, the Cessna reached these and almost flew off by itself. Whoa there, Vicky exclaimed aloud. This was exhilarating. She put the nose down a little and leveled off and turned northeast. Once across the comparatively low coast, the low coast range mountains, Vicky noticed down on the Sacramento River flowing there, flowing through rich farms and cattle prairie. Vicky bypassed the city of Sacramento, capital of California, and went sailing over the Great Valley. Her cockpit was full of sunshine, and the plane flew quite smoothly. She was making 60 miles an hour. The plane could do 80 or more, but Vicky had landmarks to watch for. Another hour passed, and Vicky saw the towns below grew smaller and further apart, and the landing began to, and the land began to roll slightly. Blue outlines of hills appeared on the horizon. Vicky climbed to a higher altitude. The temperature grew much cooler. Vicky buttoned her jacket and flew. Minutes later, a few minutes later, she saw higher mount, higher outlines on the horizon. The immense distant peaks of the Sierra Nevadas loomed up like a great wall. Vicky consulted her aircraft and looked down to locate Pacerville. It was the first of the villages nestled low on the side of the distant mountains. Vicky found the local airstrip and made a neat landing. A mechanic at work a mechanic at work in the hangar told her it was ten minutes walk to the town. Or you can hitch a ride, miss, 
Thanks, I'll walk. She was pretty wary of driving with strangers, and besides, the countryside of nut and fruit ranches offered a beautiful walk. In the village, Vicky inquired at the first small hotel. The owner put down his paper, and obligingly looking through the register, it had just it just had a few guests listed. Miss Lucy and Mrs. Heath were not among them. Did you see any older woman with a young brown-haired woman? Vicky asked at the hotel. Asked the hotel owner, "No, Miss. Why don't you ask at the Pines and Motel? You can phone them here." Vicky telephoned. The motel had no record or recall of the two women. She went to the Placerville restaurant garage police office and asked. No news. Vicky flew on to the next town, Auburn. She talked with a friend, a friendly tradesman, and a local. Local people at the roadside stand heaped with cherries, almonds, grapes, walnuts, and apples. No one, not even the motel keeper or the gas station owner, had seen the woman and the girl Vicky described. Neither of Auburn's police officers. In the next town, Marysville, Vicky inquired again. No results. In each village, a few of them were almost ghost towns of gold rush fame. She got the same story. No one had seen the two women. By mid-afternoon, Vicky felt badly discouraged. Well, so shall I give up? Vicky thought it over. So far, she had tried only the villages. The minister and painter had mentioned the possibility that Mrs. Heath might rent a house in the Sierra foothills, a house off by itself in the hills. That's the next thing to look for and ask about. Vicky took the Cessna up again, thinking hard about the best way to locate such a house. She had been aloft fifteen minutes when she decided it would be a wise precaution to replenish her gas supply. The aircraft showed a small airport off to the north. The air chart showed a small airport off to the northeast. Vicky hoped she could buy gas there. She turned, she turned, reduced speed, and watched for the airport. Just off the highway, she spotted a meadow with airstrips mowed in the grass. Three or four planes and cars were parked outside a barn which must be a hangar. She circled low over the meadow twice to let the people know she wanted to land. Two men in coveralls came out of the hangar. They motioned to her on how to come down and pointed to the windstock atop the barn. Vicky waggled the plane in reply, flew in the air pattern, and coasted for a landing. By the time three other men wearing coveralls had come to watch her, they gave Vicky a friendly smile as she stepped out of the plane. Hello. Anything we can do for you? One asked her. They were all young men, deeply tanned, with sun-squinted lines around their eyes, and immediately interested in Vicky's Cessna 150. Thanks, I'd like to buy some gas here, Vicky said, and maybe you'll advise me on how to find a place I'm looking for. Glad to do both, said one young man. I'm Wes Clark. He introduced the four others, the two McNee brothers, a red-headed called Red Jones, and a tall man who had spoken first, Jack Witter, Jack Whiting. Vicky told them her name and said her home was in Fairview, Illinois. They all said hello and invited Vicky to see their plane. She was interested in their heavy plane with special equipment and asked what they were doing. We're prospecting from the sky, Wes Foster said. We search for ore buried in the ground, mostly for mineral pockets. Want to see how the aerial miners work? I certainly want to know. What about a long torpedo thing tied to the back of your plane, as Vicky admitted? The Vicky brothers said, 
That's ours. They were electric experts, and at work they sat inside the big instruments to watch for the telltale lump of dial needles at the snooper plane flew over the mountains, lakes, and valleys. The young men explained to Vicky that a strong radioactive source, such as uranium, showed on the detectors. Do you need maps? Vicky asked. She was thinking of her own search for a secluded house in the hills. Sure, we use maps, Whittier Sure, we use maps. Whiting, here is our aerial photographer. He makes an aerial survey with a movie camera that's coordinated with electronic needles. Then he pieces the photographs together in one big map. All then he gives us. He then pieces the photographs together into one big aerial map that gives us and our geologists an overall picture of the regions we're exploring. Red Joe stammered slightly, told Vicky he was a geologist on the team. She asked if she might see the map he used. We're just looking at it in the hangar. Come on, Miss Barr. They all went into the hangar where the equipment and large photographic map were spread out on the table. Jack Whiting and Wes Clark started to explain the map to Vicky. They said it showed the contours and dips of the peaks and rugged terrain around here. The photo map resembled a complicated diagram, and it was not easy for Vicky to read. Well, are you looking for anything in particular? Whiting, the aerial photographer, asked her. Yes, an isolated house, said Vicky. Hmm, that's a tall order. There are several houses and buildings off by themselves, way up in the hills. Wes Clark suggested that they start by locating such houses on the photo map. They located several small marks on the map, which were houses. However, Whiting remembered that two of the buildings were power stations, one a sportsman hunting lodge, and one house they knew to be boarded up. What's this? Vicky put her finger on a blurred spot on the photo map. It's the size of a pinhead. That's half a dozen houses and a general store, too small even to be a village, the young McKee brother said. No post office or anything. The ranchers around there called the place Pine Top. No, I don't mean the cluster of houses, Vicky insisted. I mean this tiny dark spot. Could it be a hidden house? The young man peered at the blur. Could be. The aerial photographer said finally, lots of forest and high windy roads at that point. If it's a house, it's hidden all right. The camera doesn't tell what that blur is, I'm afraid. Vicky looked searchingly at the map. She could not see any other mark which suggested a private house. Only the one above Pine Top. I think she said slowly, I'll gamble on it and fly to Pine Top. Maintain enough altitude, was Clark advised her. You can get gas from someone at Pine Top if necessary. Gas, Vicky remembered. I need some right now, if you can spare it. The airfield had a commercial self-service gas pump, was Clark said with a grin. Our advice is free, but you have to pay for the gas. I'm glad to have both, said Vicky. The young man helped her to the refuel her plane and watched her climb in. Wes Clark looked at his wristwatch and said, It's pretty late in the afternoon to head for Pine Top. I wouldn't try it for the first time at dusk if I were you. They were right, and to explore half-mountainous terrain by air in fading light would be foolhardy. Besides, she was growing tired, and there was still the return flight to San Francisco to make. All right, I'll try for Pine Top tomorrow, she said. She smiled and waved at the five young men. Thanks a lot for everything. I hope to see you all again sometime. 
See you, they repeated. Get home safely. Happy landings. That night, Vicky dreamed of Pine Top and of the dark, fantastic house clinging to the wooden mountainside. Those troubled pictures were a reflection of her worry about Lucy. Actually, when she was wide awake on Saturday afternoon and looking down from the Cessna 150 in the bright sky, Pine Top turned out to be a cheerful place. There wasn't much of a Pine Top, just a few houses clustered together in a refreshing green of forest and hilly gazing lands. She looked down and circled, losing altitude, searching for an area to land. The one level place she could see was a back road and a wide, empty dirt road. Vicky came down bumply and stalked down the plane at the side of the road and hiked toward the house. Not one was in sight. No one was in sight. Only a yellow hound dog. A general store seemed the likeliest place to make inquiries. Going in, Vicky found it deserted. She looked around at the shelves, counters, boxes, and barrels piled with provisions for living deep in the country. She noticed a bell on the counter and rang it, then waited. Presently, a man and a woman came in, carrying baskets of garden produce. They said good morning to Vicky and looked at her curiously. Was that you flying around here a while ago? The man asked. Vicky smiled and nodded. Well, what are you doing in these parts, young lady? We don't often see strangers, the woman put in. She said their names were Carl and Angie Potter. My, that's a handsome jacket you're wearing. Thank you, said Vicky. I wonder if you'd give me some advice. The couple were eager to help. I wonder if you've seen an elderly lady with a brown-haired girl about my age with her. Why, sure enough, we have, the man said. Vicky's hopes leaped up. They came in here in a car about two weeks ago. The lady's name was Mrs. Elizabeth Heath, the woman said importantly. I saw her name on an identification tag tied to her suitcase. I noticed it when I carried some of the groceries out of to her car. I can't figure out whether the girl is her daughter or niece, or exactly what. They brought a whole carload of groceries from us the same day they got here, and went up to the old Giddens place. The house up in the hills, Vicky asked. Uh-huh. Nobody's seen or nobody's seen hide nor hair of them since, said the man. Bill Jenkins from the telephone company strung up a wire to their house, so we know Mrs. Hugh has the phone working again except for the phoning me to bring more groceries. She hasn't called up nobody here. The woman stiffened. That Mrs. Heath was unpity when she brought her groceries from us. The girls seemed real nice, though. It's the girl I want to see. Vicky felt a great sense of relief at actually having located Mrs. Heath and Lucy. How far is the gilded place from here? Oh, about twenty minutes up an awfully curvy, narrow piece of road. We could drive you up there. They all piled into the couple's jalopy. The narrow road up the house climbed and wound. On a wet day, said Mrs. Porter, anyone who drives on this road would break his neck. At the top of the road, the land leveled off and they reached the high stone wall. Behind it, Vicky could see only treetops and the second floor of a house. The potter said the wall completely enclosed the gilded place. Mr. Potter stopped the car before a large wooden door in the hall. We have to honk, he said. When there was no answer, he tried the door. Locked, he said. Angie Porter raised her voice. Oh, Mrs. Heath, Mrs. Heath. Still no answer. Maybe nobody's home. Vicky said the upstairs windows are open, and the curtains are open too. Somebody's probably home. 
Mr. Potter honked. Mrs. Potter called. Vicky knocked on the wooden door in the wall. They had made so much noise that a flock of birds swooped out of the nearby tree and flew away. Not very neighborly, Mrs. Potter grumbled. Vicky felt discomforted. Granted that Mrs. Heath wanted an isolated place in which to write her book, still, did the two women have to isolate themselves so rigidly? Well, we might as well go, said Mrs. Potter. They made a cautious descent down the narrow steep road. The Potters drove Vicky back to the spot where she had parked the plane. They would not hear of accepting the payment she offered, and said goodbye. She waited until the Potters drove safely off back the road, and then she got into the Cessna, taxied as far as the road permitted, and took off. In the air she figured out a route which would take her clear of the Juxling hillside to bring her over the house. Within sight of the walls, the house, the fast plane rolled a little when Vicky over-trolleyed it to fly more slowly. First, she followed the wall to get her bearings in relation to the house and road, and took it for a possible place to land. She was surprised to see that the property covered quite a bit of acreage. The far end of it was hilly woods, but this led to a long, fairly level stretch of meadow, which would afford a landing area. The meadow led up to the house. Before she knew it, Vicky had flown over the house, which was not very large. She would have circled around to fly back for a better look. The house was rather rustic and long and low. It was not far from the road behind the wall. A garden surrounded it in front of both sides. But the most interesting thing she saw below was two women working in the garden on the sunny south side of the house. One woman was gray-haired. The other figure was a girl with brown hair. She was throwing around her shoulders a bulky green wooden scarf like the scarf in the portrait. Lucy thought in excitement, there's Lucy Rowe, I found her. And the instant Lucy flew over them, they looked up at the plane which had now flown past twice. Vicky thought, won't they be astonished when I land inside their wall? She headed over the meadow, thinking about the wind direction and landing speed. Then she remembered at a glance to her wrist and watch that was alarmed at the time. There was simply wasn't time to land and talk to Lucy and Mrs. Heath. Her free time had nearly run out. Vicky was obliged to fly past the meadow, beyond the wooded hillside, and out over the pine top country in the direction of the coast and San Francisco. She was exceedingly disappointed. Well, I have ample time off next week, Vicky consoled herself. I'll come back.